Now on to Christmas. So we're in the second week of our Advent series, which is just a fancy way of saying Christmas. Um, so the first week, last week, we talked about the, uh, the King is Born, which is just focusing on the, the, the theme of Christmas scriptures, referring to Jesus as a king, right? Which is a little interesting for us because we, in America, we don't, we don't like monarchies. Um, and for good reason. It's not a particularly good system of government unless you're talking about the kingdom of God and then it's awesome, all right? There is no democracy in heaven. And you'll be, you'll be happy for it, all right? Jesus never comes to you and goes, hey, let's take a vote. And if we all agree, we'll do what I want to do, all right? That's not what he ever says. He just says, this is what we're doing, all right? Um, and then this week, we're going to look at the sonship where the son is born, the sonship of Christ, which is another theme of Christmas. And then next week, Christmas Sunday, we'll be talking about the light, which is another great metaphor for Jesus, all right? So we'll start in Isaiah 9, 6, which I referenced last week too, probably will next week. By the way, if you, speaking of open doors, our Christmas service, well really any week, this week, next week, this week is too late, but next week, Christmas Eve, is a great time to invite people. Um. I'm not thinking like someone who's going to another church. Please don't just go to somebody who's going to Main Street Baptist and say, hey, why don't you leave your church and come to ours? I love the people at Main Street Baptist. They're really cool. Do not do that. But if you got people in your life that are far from God, and this is a pretty, there's low barrier to entry at this time of year. Because people are already celebrating Christian ideas just trying to do it without Jesus, which is silly, right? It's a silly thing that people try to have hope without the hope giver, try to have joy without the joy giver, um, without even knowing what hope and joy is. They just go, yay, let's put it on t-shirts and sing the songs, right? So this is a great time when you have this open door to, to do that. So if you've got, just kind of get yourself in that mindset, especially Christmas Eve, it's 30 minutes it's beautiful, um, nothing offensive is going to happen except for the gospel, right? All right, anyway. So Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he says, to us, a son is given. It's like starting to think, like, what does that mean, a son? It can't be just, I mean, one, it's indicating that it's going to be a man and not a woman. But it's also, there's this idea of Jesus as a son begins to crop up all the way back in Isaiah's prophecies. And he's not going to be just a son of man. He will be that, but that's a big word, son of man, a big phrase. So let's read on, look at Luke 1, 26 to 33, and you'll start to see this develop. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Little podunk, redneck town, Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, 
and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And we talked last week about the forever kingdom thing that goes back to Samuel and all of that, which you're already familiar with if you were here last week. We also had this new phrase, the son of the most high. Make no mistake, Joseph is not the most high. Okay? God is the most high. So this son who's going to be born from Mary with no earthly father, his father, his literal father, is God the Father the Most High. So it's not just a cool Christmas miracle that Mary gets pregnant without being with anyone. It's very important theologically, and it's very important prophetically to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy about a son will be given. So Jesus is identified prophetically first as a son of David, then as the son of God the Most High. And so right here we could jump into a whole nother sermon about the Son of Man, but I just did that. I almost did it again, but I just did it in Revelation. So you can go back a couple of weeks. I think I went back and looked. Week two. Go back to week two of the Revelation series. Insert sermon here. All right? That's what that means. <clears throat> so if you look at your notes, insert Son of Man series sermon here and go back to week two and listen to that. It's another kind of messianic, prophetic term that emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, but Jesus being the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy about the Son of Man coming, all right? So then in Luke chapter 3, we have Luke's record of the baptism of Jesus. And you're like, what does this have to do with Christmas? You'll see it in a second. Here's what it says. This is Jesus comes, he gets baptized from John the Baptist. Verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, meaning visible, physical presence of the Holy Spirit, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So we have the whole, the full trinity right there in one place. We have Jesus baptized, standing there praying. You have the Holy Spirit physically coming down, something that looked like a dove out of the sky. And then you have the Father's voice audibly speaking out of nowhere, saying what? It's very important. Like when this is... When the, God speaks audibly where everyone hears it, we should kind of note this is an important moment in history. Okay, not to state the painfully obvious. What does he say? You are my, speaks directly to Jesus. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Not just mostly pleased, not just generally happy as long as, but well, like the most pleased that God can be is how he is over Jesus, his son. Now, why wouldn't God just tell 
If God just wanted to encourage Jesus, why wouldn't he just tell him privately or tell him in his heart, right? Or point him to a scripture. Why do it in this historically monumental supernatural way? Because he wanted all of us to hear it too. You are my son. In other words, you are the son of the most high. The most high is talking, and he's saying, you're my son. This father speaks out of heaven, witnessed by the Holy Spirit, and pronounces the identity of Jesus, which is Jesus is the son of God. But if you read on, there's this odd, at least I think, I was an English major. I expect certain continuity when you're reading. And you have this kind of weirdly out-of-place genealogy right after this. You would expect the genealogy to be somewhere earlier, right? And then verse 37 to 38, right at the end of that genealogy, it says the son, he's going through a list. He's tracing the genealogy from Jesus up, which is another weird thing. Usually you go from the top down in a genealogy. You go from Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the center of all genealogies. And he goes up all the way to the very top, which is God. And he says at the very end of that genealogy, he says the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. That's at the top, first human then the son of God. Who is Adam? Adam is the son of God, lowercase s. So Adam has a title. Jesus has a title. Adam's title is son of God, lowercase s. Jesus' title is son of God, capital S. Luke traces the bloodline of all of Jesus all the way back to Adam, then calls Adam the son of God. So we call Adam, there's a theological term for Adam, which is the federal head, all right? just means the top, the, the delta of the river, right? The spring of the human river. Adam is in a perfect moral state when he was made by God. And I say perfect moral state, <clears throat> meaning he had not sinned. He could sin. When we say God is perfect, we don't mean God cannot and will not sin. If God does it, it's right, right? That's not Adam. Adam was like a blank slate, but he had the power to write on that slate whatever he wanted, and he wrote sin on it. Adam was in a perfect moral state, was then tempted, and fell. Go back to Genesis and read that. And subsequently, all of humanity fell with him. He is everything downstream from a river. If you pollute the head of the stream, everything downstream is polluted. And this is the way the human race is. Adam failed as a son. Adam, the son of God, lowercase s, was supposed to be a righteous and good son and to pass his righteousness on to, his gener- to the next generation and the generation after that so that his genealogy would not be cursed. But Adam was a bad son. Failed, just like you and me. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. That's what we are. We were born into failure, every one of us. Even your cute, adorable little baby 
comes out of the womb to quote my father-in-law screaming, my will be done. Me, me, the me monster is alive and well. Fully developed me monster in every little baby, aren't they? Their me monster if, begins to conflict with your me monster. And it's one of the greatest ways to kill your me monster is to have a little tiny helpless baby that whose me monster is bigger than yours. And their me monster eats your me monster, and then you have to kill their me monster. This is parenting in a nutshell. Right? There, there's your entire parenting sermon in one. And it never ends, by the way. Your me monster always has to die some more, and so does theirs. So this is, this is what we call original sin, right? Adam's the federal head. He's at the top of the river. He pollutes it. He fails as a son. And then we see Jesus is the second Adam. Adam is the first son of God, small s. Jesus is the true and better son of God with a capital S. Of course, Jesus gets it right. So immediately after this genealogy in Luke, Luke records the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in chapter 4. All of that is intentional. The order is intentional. None of that's out of place. Because Jesus goes directly from God pronouncing audibly, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You are the son of God, the second Adam. And he goes and he proves it in the wilderness in case no one believed that he wasn't. And he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted in every way Adam ever was. And instead of failing as a son, he succeeds. And he resists the temptation. So if you're in Christ, insert in Christ sermon here. If you're in Christ, you are in his sonship, his perfect sonship. Jesus was, the, was and is the perfect son. He did what Adam failed to do. He did what you and I fail to do every day, which is that he is a perfect son. If you're in Christ and God calls you his beloved son, think about it. If you go back in your mind to Jesus standing there after being baptized, the heavens open up, whatever that looked like. The Holy Spirit comes down in this shimmering light and lands on Jesus. And the Father says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. If you're in Christ, you're in him there. Not just now. You have received that well done from God the Father in Christ. It's what you have in Him. You receive Jesus' perfect sonship. All the overcoming that Jesus did after that in the wilderness, you have received that. It's as if you were there overcoming yourself even though you didn't. <laughs> you did the opposite. You go in the wilderness, and the first sign of you, you go knocking on the devil's door asking for bread. And so do I, but I don't, want to mean, I don't want to sound accusatory. By you, I mean we, all right? In fact, your father has said over you, those words 
I know it's hard to imagine, especially when you feel your failure really keenly. But it's the truth. This is the father heart of God. This is what it means for God to be your father. It's a very real thing. It's as real, the fact that God is your father is as real for you as it is for Jesus. And so to question the fact that God the father is your father and loves you this way is to question whether or not he loves Jesus this way. Because if you're, now if you're not a believer, if you're not in Christ, you do not have this. We are not all children of God. Only those who are the children of God are the children of God, okay? 1 John 5, chapter 5, verses 9 to 12, he says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Two things. One, refusing to believe that Jesus is and was the promised Son of God, the Son of the Most High, is to accuse God of being a liar. That's serious. There is no middle ground here. You cannot say to God, that isn't my truth. God, you believe what you want to believe. That's good for you. I'll do what I want to do. That's not how God works. God is never happy to stay in his own world separate from you and let you define your world and your identity however you want to, and he'll just kind of let you go because that's your truth. That is not how God works. That's not how the world works. That's not Because, by the way, it's not how God works. It's not how anything works. Because God defines how everything works. So God clearly says here through John, to say Jesus is not the Son of God is the same thing as pointing at God and saying, you are a liar. There's no middle ground in God, none. Why does this feel controversial to say? Because <laughs> it shouldn't be. Second thing from these verses is all eternal life is in the Son. There is no eternal life outside of the Son. There are no other roots to God, eternal life, or true righteousness, or goodness, or joy, or hope. In it. Hope, if you're going to talk about eternal joy, real joy, eternal hope, real hope. The inverse is also true. If you have the Son, then your eternal life is eternally secure in Him, not in you. That well done was not spoken over you, it was spoken over Jesus, and you are in Him. That's why it's secure. That's why it's important to say he's well-pleased. That word means he's the most pleased he can be. And you're in that, not because you earned it. Because if you earned it, then you're like the first Adam. Imagine if, if you go back to Genesis, if God's solution 
was to just do some sacrifices and put Adam back on a clean slate again. Moral perfection. What would have happened? Give him a day or two. Maybe, I mean, if, if he's doing really well and really just staying holy, maybe three days, and he's hungry for an apple again. He's back where we started. And this is the story of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Over and over and over again. Clean slate, clean slate. How many times does God have to wipe your slate clean and then you mess it up again for you to realize that this ain't going to work? And so you going around trying to earn the well done is silly because he's already said it audibly. He's like, how else do I need to say it? Like, if you can't get it when I say it out of the clouds audibly so everyone can hear it, then how else can I do it? There is no other way. There is no other way to get righteousness other than through the Son. So when you put faith in Christ, all the credentials that you received in, first, in the first Adam, all of your earthly Bona fides are useless. They're gone. They're stripped away from you. The respect of your peers, or we could say the lack of the respect of your peers, depending on if you're a winner or a loser. Your family pedigree or lack of it. Sorry, Dad. You can't get me into heaven. It's not going to work. Your man-made credentials or lack of them. Your ministry title or lack of it. On and on and on. All of it gone. Useless. I mean, what good are those things if God has already said, well done? It sort of negates it all, doesn't it? Every category of earthly achievement no longer have any weight of importance as far as your righteousness goes. Only one title will ever carry any weight with God. Only one Adam will stand before him. Only one credential will carry any weight with your father, and that is son of God or daughter of God. That is the only title that you will hold out before the father when you see him face to face. It will not be, yeah, but... I, I really, my boss really thought I was great. You know, or what, you won't hold any of those titles or credentials. The only thing you will be able to say is, I'm, I'm your son because I'm in your son. So why do we have such a hard time believing the gospel? Why is it that we can say to other people, you are God's beloved child, he's pleased with you, but we believe that we are only as good as our last good or bad decision? We allow ourselves to be defined by our worst moments instead of the Son of God's greatest triumph. The only thing standing between you and becoming a Pharisee is whether or not you actually believe that you are the beloved son or daughter of God and he is well pleased with you. If you believe that he died for you but is not pleased with you, then you're living in the power and authority of the first Adam. 
Paul says in Galatians, do you really think that the way you got in to the kingdom of God is different from how you stay in the kingdom of God? How you grow and become fruitful? It's all by grace. All of it. If you believe he died for you but is not pleased with you, you are probably probably leading others to the wrong Adam too. You are probably in some way trying to get other people to live, like maybe your kids, or the people in your small group, or your friends. You are somehow trying to get them to make God happy and earn something through their moral goodness the way you are. You will teach people that they have to meet God halfway. Man, I hate that statement. God will meet God halfway, brother. You do your part, he'll do his. That's just evil. It sounds so good, doesn't it? It sounds like, man, I'm really, I'm going to put in the work, put in the time in my Bible really meet God halfway and then trust him to do his part. And then what happens? You get some point in life where you've been working really hard to be good for God, to earn, to meet him halfway, and he, and he doesn't. And something falls through. I've been a good little boy, and you were not blessing me. The most angry I've ever gotten at God was over that. I was having the worst employment experience I can imagine. Everything I was doing was not working, and I'm driving home one day, beating my fist against the steering wheel, yelling at God, I've done everything you asked me to do. Just, and I was like, I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done. And I've told you this before, and he quietly just whispers in my heart, no, you're not. No, you're not. Go ahead, let it out, but you're not done with me. Come on. <laughs> Which just made me more angry. Meet God halfway. You'll teach people that God helps those that help themselves. You'll teach people that healing only comes to the good kids. Blessing only comes to the good kids. You'll teach people that revival only comes to those that are angsty and sad and angry at the world for not being as solemn as they are. You'll use people to shore up your own feelings of failure with God. You'll manipulate people with guilt instead of leading them with faith. You'll prophesy more doom than hope. You'll be impatient with others' sin but quick to defend your own. You'll receive God's discipline as punishment and then do the same to others. You'll be crushed by criticism, especially when it's warranted. That's the worst kind of criticism. It's, it's fine when you're criticized for something that's not true, because then you can feel self-righteous as a martyr that I'm being persecuted. But when they're right, when somebody says, hey, man, that wasn't, that wasn't good, and you're like, oh, man, they're right, Just and it wipes you out. You will replace dependence on the Spirit with, with rules, principles, and pragmatism. All of this, if you believe Jesus died for you, but he's not pleased with you. You're living in the first Adam. That is all the fruit of the first Adam. If you believe that he did not die for you, 
but is still pleased with you, so that's the opposite problem, then you're deceived and are living now in eternal death and headed for eternal destruction. It's the old, I'm a good person. It's a classic evangelist question. If you were to die today, where would you go and why? Oh, I'd go to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. I have met God halfway. I have done my part, and he will do his. It's the southern gospel. You're deceived. Because the first Adam doesn't get into heaven. He needs Jesus. It's not about who the good people are and who the bad people are. This is a worldly idea. It's not about the good people getting into heaven and the bad people going to hell, and hell's really bad, so they got to be really bad, and then everybody above the really bad goes to heaven somehow. And then some religions go, well, that doesn't quite work. We need like a, another level of heaven in between or some mechanism by which to go from bad to good. We come all kind of complex systems and mechanisms to make that feel right according to our sense of justice and fair play. But the truth is, it's not about good or bad. Those are the wrong categories completely. God says it's about who's alive and who's dead. There are grades of good and grades of bad, right? I can always make myself, myself feel more good by comparing myself to people who are less good than me. And it's not hard to, this is, we live in a fallen world, it's not hard to find someone who's less good than you, no matter how bad you are. You can be the worst criminal in history, but you can find at least one guy to compare yourself to to make yourself feel better. There's always, you know, Hitler, right? Pol Pot, Stalin. There's all kinds of really bad people. I'm sure Hitler was kind of going, I'm not that bad. I mean, there's this guy. He's killed more millions than I have. It's a terrible way to decide about the truth of reality. The truth is it's about alive and dead, and there is no gray area in that. You're either completely dead or you're completely alive. God is not impressed with anyone's so-called goodness except his own. Think about that. No amount of your goodness will impress him one bit. The, your best version of you, the best version on your best day, at your most holy, at your best effort, your best day ever. So let's forget about your worst moment. Your best, the most self-sacrificing, the most humble, the most giving, the most patient moment you have ever had on this earth does not impress him enough to call you holy enough to be in his presence. None of it. The only goodness he is impressed with is his own goodness. So the only goodness you can hope to have is his. That's why it's so important for you to understand that Jesus was the, the capital son, the second Adam who did it right, and you were in him. It's his righteousness that you have, not your own. This is what Christmas is about. 
So Isaiah prophesied that a virgin would bear a son and his name would be Emmanuel. It's in chapter 7. And then if we read Matthew 1, when Joseph has a dream, an angel talks to him in his dream because Joseph is understandably confused, <laughs> right? He's engaged. His fiance is pregnant because an angel came to her and said, you'll be pregnant with the Messiah. It's a tough sell, right? He's understandably confused. He's thinking, well, maybe I should just not do go through with this. He has a dream, and in part of that dream, the angel says to him, and basically quotes or references Isaiah 7. It says, Matthew 1, 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, referencing Isaiah, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So on Christmas, we celebrate the day when the Son of God was born as a Son of Man. He was born into humility, fully God, and fully man. He became the second Adam and then gave us the reward of his suffering and his resurrection. We couldn't go climb our way to him, so he came to us. Jesus is God with us, present, physically with us. And he remains with you right now by the Spirit. So you're not just in Him in some sort of metaphorical way. You are quite literally, presently in Him. He's with you by the Spirit right now. And will be tomorrow morning when you're cranky and grumpy and utterly failing as a son or a daughter of God. Totally not living up to your title. Not living up to God saying, you are my son or my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Not living up to that at all. He's still with you. He remains with you now by the Spirit. The world has no other hope worth hoping in. No other peace worth relying on and no other joy that will last. None. All this faith, hope, love, joy, peace, business is a farce without Jesus. How long does it last? How long, is that, how long do the good vibes last without Jesus? By the day after Christmas, December 26, 7 a.m.? For many people, not even that long because the holidays are a depressing time because they've lost people or bad things have happened to them around this time of year. Maybe this is the first Christmas they've had without a loved one who died this year. And so for them, they don't even have, like you say to somebody like that, have hope and jingle some bells. Put on a fun Christmas sweater. And you want to throttle them, right? You need hope in something else. So our hope is in Emmanuel, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. And this is what gets you up in the morning. Amen. So why don't we stand up? I want to pray for us. Come on, Joel.
Grab the microphone there. Uh, so, this week, God has been talking to me about um, coming to him. So the word that he gave earlier, when I walked in the door, immediately I had this sense of God reminding me a lot of the things that he had been talking to me about. But this is the key one is that God is saying to the church, run to me. Run to me. When you screw up, run to me. When you feel depressed, run to me. When you're upset, run to me. But this is the key. When you feel good, run to me. <laughs> when you feel like you did right, run to me. When you feel like encouraged, run to me. That's what he's saying, which matches exactly what you're saying, and I think he's linking with the sermon. God is saying this, and this is one thing he told me. I am not sitting in heaven with my finger on the smite button waiting for you to screw up. I am not waiting to see how bad you do or how much you sin or whatever you're doing wrong. Because Jesus already took care of that. What he's doing is, he's, and this is the thing, he sometimes, he makes me feel the way he feels, I guess a little bit at least. Like he's just waiting for you to come. Come talk to me, come see me. And you know what that means. It doesn't mean that you get in your car and you go somewhere. Well, maybe it does. I don't know. For you, it might be. What it means is, in your heart, in your mind, you need to turn to him. Those things that you say, well, I can go talk to him about this because, you know, I screwed up here or I haven't quite done that or I know I'm supposed to go this or do that. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. It's when you go and you come and talk to dad, you know, and you come close to him. And you accept to hear from him because he already knows everything you have done and everything you're going to do. And Jesus already took care of it. So he's saying, come. And I think it goes with the open door thing. He's saying, come, run to me. When you're depressed, when you're discouraged, when you're angry, when you're upset, when you're happy, when you're glad, when you got the new job, when you feel like you're accomplished something, run to me. You need to run to God all the time. And that's what Amen. he's saying. He's not waiting for you to screw up. He's waiting for you to come. Amen. That's good. All right. Let's pray.